Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Hal Whitman. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Nat Malkus. Nat is a senior fellow and deputy director of education policy at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also the host of an AEI podcast called The Report Card with Nat Malkus, in which he discusses the latest in education with some of the field's most interesting researchers, practitioners, and policymakers. For our summer 2023 issue, Nat wrote an essay about the Biden administration's aggressive and costly approach to student loan forgiveness. The president has already forgiven hundreds of billions of dollars in student loans, but the administration's little-noticed changes to income-driven repayment rules could dwarf the more familiar loan forgiveness agenda, transforming the federal student loan system and, over time, he argues, rendering it unsustainable. Nat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. All right, Nat, so... When we were going back over your essay for this podcast, we realized that there's just a lot going on with student loans in the Biden administration. There's there a lot of money, a lot going on. We thought we would start with the recent Supreme Court cases, the kind of most recent thing that happened in this arena. Yeah, so just to review the case, so at the end of the last term, the court struck down President Biden's plan. This plan would have canceled up to $20,000 in student loan debt per borrower for, for borrowers with incomes below $125,000. And the total cost of that would have been about $400 billion, so a pretty costly program. We wonder if you could tell us more about this specific plan, you know, how it sort of started with the pandemic and then why the court decided to strike it down as unconstitutional. Yeah, well, it, it has been around for some time. It's been sort of something that developed among Democratic presidential candidates who, who were going for the candidacy. And, and there was a little bit of one-upsmanship and gamesmanship mm-hmm. about how much might we forgive. And look, this is all predicated on some alarm about student loan debt. Student loan debt is greater than than auto loan debt. I mean, it right. is a huge yeah. amount of debt. Right now it sits at about $1.7 trillion. Mm-hmm. And there's a question about whether this is a crisis and what needs to be done to am- ameliorate it. And the, the Biden proposal was cut $10,000 in student loan debt or up to that amount for folks making $125,000 or less and up to $20,000 for those who received Pell Grants and mm-hmm. so were low mm-hmm. income when they went to college. And a- as you said, it's extremely expensive. It's a part of a-, a broader approach that the administration has taken that's really a maximalist approach mm. to addressing loan debt and it was stopped because it was it was an overreach mm-hmm. it, it was quite simply the the court ruled that the Biden administration was trying to do something that was more than a modification of loans but really was sort of a wholesale forgiveness program that mm-hmm. exceeded his the authority that was set down in the the Heroes Act. And it was the, the the Biden administration's marquee proposal, certainly, but it's certainly not the only one cooking. It's not the most expensive one cooking over the long term. And, you know, sort of at the intro to the piece, I sort of put this out there saying, it's been the distraction, it's taken all the limelight, but, you know, buckle up because there's more to come. <laughs> Yeah, so so Nat, you manage AEI's student debt forgiveness tracker, which records the nearly $300 billion in foregone student loan revenue. 
that's been racked up since the Trump administration and, and the start of the pandemic specifically. And using executive authority, President Biden has foregone the vast majority of those loan revenues to the tune of $243 billion or, or more than 80% of that revenue. But it doesn't end there. And the real focus of your essay is this lesser known program called Income Driven Repayment or IDR. And so you write that the administration's planned regulatory changes to IDR would, quote, fundamentally transform the federal student loan system and over time render it unsustainable. So if you could just tell us more about why you focused on IDR specifically for your essay. Yeah. So first of all, I'll give you the short answer and then we can sort of pull out some of the details, mm-hmm. but it stands to cost half a trillion dollars over 10 years. That's a pretty good reason to focus on. Yeah. <laughs> sure, um, sure. It, so it's a, it's an incredible investment of money. It's These are dollar figures that are really incomprehensible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's that, but it also is different from the forgiveness programs that we've had on offer. So whether it's the payment pause, which froze payments and interest accrual for federal student loans during the pandemic, for that is for 40 months, no one had to pay a student, a federal student loan, 40. So, but, but that is sort of an interim, if extended measure. The forgiveness was sort of a, a one-time thing. Hey, we're gonna forgive some loans and then everybody's gonna have a, a reduced debt burden and then we'll move forward from there. This changes the machinery of hmm. repayment okay. for a lot of people and to such a degree that for many people doing kind of what they're supposed to do, go out, get a college degree, get an associate's degree, whatever degree you have, go out and make money. We will give you a break if your income is lower. But if you do what you are supposed to do, still a, a, a huge minority, even a majority, will not pay back their full student loans and many will not pay any back on the loans they borrowed. That transforms it. That, that sounds less like a loan system, more like a sort of loan to grant hybrid system, something that we don't really have a perfect word for, mm. but it's not a loan system if this goes through. <laughs> yeah. Before we talk more now about IDR, I want to take a step back. You know in your essay that the president now manages a $1.6, $1.7 trillion loan portfolio, which might, people might be thinking, like, how did this happen? Like, how does he have control over this much money in the student loan space? I just wanted to kind of list a couple of points you make related to that, that, you know, student loan payments themselves, particularly for undergraduate students, low and middle income students at public universities, haven't actually increased that much. There's a lot of aid for them to take advantage of. Graduate student debt, however, has increased a lot. And you note that that's a big driver of this. And then also that in 2010, the federal government assumed control of the federal loan program. Before there were a lot of private lenders lenders involved, that's not the case anymore. That This is why the executive branch has so much power in this space without congressional approval. Yeah, kind of walk us through how, how this happened that the president got control of such a large loan portfolio. So, so these are both key things to understand. Mm. About half of federal student debt is graduate school debt. Mm. Okay, so first of all, that should just change kind of the picture of what we're talking about. Right. If a lot of these students were overburdened with, you know, dozens of thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars in debt from their undergraduate, we might ask some questions about, well, how'd you rack up that much debt? But we would also say, well, they only have a BA that makes it difficult. If half of these folks have graduate school debt, first of all, they got more schooling, but also they have higher returns. They have higher incomes. Right. So we can expect them to, on average, be able to pay these these loans 
back much better than somebody with just a, a BA would on average. And then the other thing that you bring up is how can the president, who's not supposed to have the power of the purse, right. be able to just spend all all this money, effectively spend it by not, not requiring it to be repaid? And that's true. In, in 2010, the Congress passed legislation that meant that all federal student direct loans came out of the U.S. Treasury. And but prior to that, the federal government would guarantee student loans, but private lenders would lend them out. So mm -hmm. private lenders held the principal and they collect the debt. And then if they went into default and couldn't collect that debt, then it was guaranteed by the U.S. government. Well, that's a much smaller financial risk. But the other yeah. thing is, is that if that trajectory continued, the president would have a much smaller loan portfolio, still have some, but a much smaller federal loan portfolio where he was sort of controlling both the principal and interest and collection duties on these. And therefore, he can, or, or at least there is some belief that he has a lot more power to sort of unilaterally forgive this debt. If this had not been the case, we could still have $1.7 trillion in student debt. The vast majority of it would be held by private banks. And the federal government could launch any of these forgiveness proposals, but they definitely have to get Congress to authorize Treasury dollars right. to go to that. So it's because the president is in charge, the executive is in charge of this huge loan portfolio, that all these actions on forgiveness are sort of plausible and arguable. Otherwise, it'd take an act of Congress. Right. And then, I mean, I don't know, like back in 2010, did Congress realize just how much of a sort of executive power grab or power grab or shifting of power that would occur as a result? Of oh, this? I don't think so. In yeah. fact, this, you know, sort of the logic behind this in 2010 was this was a pay for. Right. So mm. student loans actually make money. If we move these direct loans into the federal treasury and take over it, we can actually generate some savings that we can then spend on, I believe, it was the Obamacare nice. initiative. Yeah. And so it was originally a pay for. It turns out long last that it actually doesn't make the money. It's it's not a big loser, but it, it loses money. And all this forgiveness turns that into a mammoth loss yeah. because we're forgiving or, or, or suggesting that we should forgive hundreds of billions of dollars. So returning to IDR, what is the program exactly? You kind of refer to it as the machinery, our, our machinery of repayment. So how does that machinery work? And yeah, if you could just tell us more about the kind of three components of it that you outlined in your essay of income exemption, assessment rate, and term to forgiveness, and then how the Biden administration wants to reform these things. Yeah. So first of all, to say on these things, there's a lot of machinery here and there's lots of different kinds of machinery. Income driven repayment or income based repayment, first of all, has been around for a long time. This is not new. Income based repayment is an idea that, well, hey, some students are not going to get a financial benefit after they take loans to go to college. And if they can't make the money to pay off those loans, maybe we should have a safety net. Mm -hmm. That exists now. There are parameters for this. You can opt into the program if you're low income. And under current rules, if your income is below 150% of the poverty line, you pay zero. You just you pay zero. And it's, it's as if you were making a payment because your income's too low. So there's additional rules that treat how income-driven repayment works. One is what's the assessment rate. So if you earn more money than that sort of $0 level, mm -hmm. then you pay a certain percentage of that. Right now, it's 10% of your income over the 150% of the poverty level. And that's how much you would pay annually. 
And then finally, if you hold this debt, but you've made payments for a certain period of time, we call this the term to forgiveness, eventually the federal government will wipe out your principal, right? You, you If you've paid for, usually it's 20, it can be 25 years. Mm-hmm. At that 20 year mark, okay, you've paid enough and we'll forgive the rest. This has been a safety net that's been in place. It has not been executed perfectly. There have been problems with it. It can be improved upon. I mean, look, one thing to remember is a lot of these loans are 20 or 25 years old. So we're talking about records from like 2003, right? Yeah. 1998. That's, the, you know, our, our, our record-keeping systems were complicated. Servicers have not been perfect on this. Nonetheless, there have been problems with IDR. The Biden administration wants to use IDR to be a much more expansive safety net. So to do that, you could do any one, you could change any one of these main components. You could say, well, we're going to give $0 payments people with 225% of the federal poverty level, right? So that that means more people would have zero payments. And even the people that don't have zero payments are going to be paying on less because they don't pay on that first 225% of poverty. Or you could cut what we call the assessment rate. I said it was 10%. You could cut that to 5%. And that means, well, whatever your leftover income is after the exemption, you pay a smaller share of that. Your payments are lower for most people. Or you could cut the term to forgiveness. So instead of 20 years, maybe 15 years, or let's say 10 years, you pay, you make your payments on time. You know, you're a good citizen or a good borrower, as as I should say. You're in repayment, and so we shorten that time frame. All those would be expensive, but they would also make the the safety net portion of IDR a, a little bit more cushioned for borrowers. The Biden administration's program is so expensive because they do all three. (laughs) They turn all three dials, pretty maximally, Mm, like in the same way that I suggested. So they move the income exemption from 150% to 225%. Underneath that, you pay zero. You only pay 5% of your income to student loans above that. And it gets a little complicated here, but for undergraduate borrow, it's 10 years. If you have $12,000 or less, and if you borrow more, it extends a little longer. And it's up to 25 years for graduate student Mm -hmm. debt, for graduate student debt. And that's weighted proportionally. And I do want to say, just to give points where I can, Mm -hmm. the Biden administration, they are paying some attention to graduate and undergraduate debt. They're treating it differently. And if they didn't do that, this would be vastly more expensive and probably more regressive, right? I I think that the earning power you get from graduate school should come with a little bit more responsibility to pay loans. You also are are holding more debt. So that, in that respect, is, is a good angle on this still incredibly expensive program. Yeah. Yeah. And just to continue on, on that line of thought, Nat, you read that these reforms we've already mentioned would turn this into kind of unsustainable, a loan grant hybrid, you even call it a new entitlement program, again, without congressional approval. I mean, we just want to mention some other numbers. You might have already mentioned some of these, but the idea that under these reforms, four in five bar- borrowers would receive some loan forgiveness, one in five would have all of their loans forgiven. You also note that the Penn Wharton budget model estimates the borrowers would pay back 63 cents for every dollar. So again, it's not really a loan if you're paying back less than what you got. And then as well, as you've mentioned earlier, these reforms would cost, you know, half a trillion dollars in 10 years. When the, when IDR, I think, was first proposed, it was more like $8 billion over over 10 years. So this is huge. Kind of Tell us more about why this is this could make it so unsustainable, the student loan system. Yeah, well, the, the numbers are kind of all over the place because we yeah. don't know how this is going to play out yeah. over 10 years. It depends on how much money people make. If there's a recession, that could change it. There's, it depends on borrowing. 
depends on how many people enroll. There's there's many things. So ballparking the cost is difficult. The Penmorton budget model, which runs pretty good numbers, increased their estimate of what this would cost. Their middle estimate is $475 billion, so right in that $500 yeah. billion, which is half a trillion dollars. And that's just so the quite, middle one. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> the middle one. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a good deal of uncertainty around those estimates. Mm. But I think more convincing is just to kind of figure out, well... You know, what do you have to do to get forgiveness? And some folks at the Urban Institute have sort of run some numbers trying to speculate this. What they found was if you're a BA graduate with an average amount of borrowing for for a cohort from 2017, so you have $31,000 total loan debt, and it's all undergraduate, that 49% of them would pay back less than half of what they borrowed. Typically, you pay back more than 100% of what you borrowed, right? <laughs> yeah. Because you're, you're borrowing and there's interest, interest and so yeah, forth. Yeah. So you're paying off your loan and it's more than 100%. Right. This is, you know, half the people are paying less than half. And, and a sizable percentage are paying zero. Penn Morton has new numbers out and they have different perspectives, or n- not totally different, but different estimates on that. But look, the primary thing is that it does change this so a large percentage of borrowers are looking to not pay back their loans in full. And the people who will pay those dollars are not the schools, they're not the parents, they are American taxpayers. And it changes the expectations that people have Mm -hmm. for the, the, the payments that they may face. And because it's so generous, it actually injects some sort of perverse incentives into the system Mm -hmm. that I think can be really problematic going down the line. So talking about some other negative consequences of these IDR changes, how do you think they'll affect accountability structures for higher education programs and, and student borrowers with debt? And I guess, you know, the two main problems with the current student loan system, you could say that they're rising student debt and college costs. And so will these reforms reduce rising debt and and college costs or or will they fail to even accomplish those? Yeah, those are all good questions. I think it's important to to address them squarely. Look, a lot of times people are are stuck on the same idea. College costs are out of control. And college is expensive. Mm -hmm. College sticker prices before aid are going up Mm -hmm. steadily over time. The actual cost of college is not is not increasing right. the way people think it is. It's been flat for a while. It's actually fall, fallen in the past several years. So we should still be concerned about college costs. The question that I think is important to answer is, what might this do to college costs? I have not heard anyone from any side of the aisle in any instance argue that this will cut costs. There's no reason to think this will have downward pressure. Mm. And there is some reason that it could cause upward pressure or give permission to charge more. We'll have to see on that. There are incentives to for individuals to borrow more. Look, if you are planning to go in the nonprofit sector and, and, and sort of, I'm going to graduate and not necessarily go for money, then you want to borrow because you believe some money might be forgiven and that's a, a safer bet, which again, it is problematic. The, the tough thing to understand about this is that if you borrow, let's say you borrow $10,000 and at the end of that period, because of this IDR, you get $400 forgiven, right? So you pay off most of your loan. Well, if you borrowed $20,000 and you got then under the exact same scenario, you'd get 
$10,400 forgiven. So everything you borrow over that gets lopped off at the end because whatever's remaining gets forgiven. And so there's a lot of opportunities for arbitrage. Now, mm. folks will say, yeah, students won't do that. Well, you know, some smart students will do that. Yeah. And then there's just the, the rising tide of, well, borrowing makes more sense. It's, it, it's, it's okay to borrow because there's a larger safety net. So I do see these incentives as encouraging borrowing. And that's the problem that gave rise to the need for more income-driven yeah. repayment generosity in the first place. And that may never quite be visible because mm. after this is put in place or if, if this is put in place, then, you know, it'll be the cost of doing business. We've baked in substantial amounts of forgiveness on hundreds of billions of dollars a year, about $100 billion a year in student loans. And then the last thing you asked about accountability. Well, if you go into default on your student loans, they will automatically enroll you in IDR. And if your income is low, you will automatically pay a zero payment and you will no longer be in default. Unfortunately, default rates are built into our accountability system as a reflection of whether a given university program is actually high quality. If IDR artificially reduces default rates, then all of a sudden our detector of poor program co mm. quality doesn't detect poor program right. quality. And so it makes a, a whole other sector of higher ed policy, that is, how do we get some accountability going on here, all the more difficult. Sure. Yeah, so Nat, so for all the reasons we've been talking about on this podcast, you think this would be disastrous to you actually write in your essay and that this should be halted or revised. Now, so yeah, let's talk about the state of play. So as it stands right now, you kind of suggest there's three options of where this could go from here. Either the Biden administration decides to scale it back because they become worried about the cost or the size of this. The Supreme Court intervenes again with another case. I mean, someone brings a suit, it's another case. Maybe they use the major questions doctrine to strike it down as the executive branch assuming too much power from a statute here. Or Congress does act and decides to pass its own higher education financing legislation in the loan kind of space. What do you think is likely to happen from here? And what would you what would you personally like to see happen from here? Well, I really would like to see Congress engage on this and come up with a solution. There are several Republican bills. It's sort of quiet on the side of the Democrats in large part because there's a Democratic president who is, you know, has major actions on this. They're not going to it's not really politically astute to put stumbling blocks in in his way. Mm. I do think that there's some serious cost to that. We already talked about how the president has this ability to act in the near term because he's got this loan portfolio that he directly oversees. But that also means that Congress isn't working on a larger bill that tackles all the issues right. in higher education policy, from program quality to what should we do about sort of collecting data and making sure that schools have skin in the game. There's all these questions that are part and parcel of this larger problem, but there's no direct route to change those policies. So instead, we have a lot of policy on student loans and very little policy going on on these other factors. The Biden administration announced and, and sort of trumpeted and renamed the IDR program, the SAVE program, which uh. is an acronym of, 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 of some sort. The, the <laughs> thing that DC is best at is coming up with <laughs> acronyms. So it's SAVE. Right. And that was a response that was, you know, later in the afternoon after the SCOTUS decision came down. So I, my conjecture in the article that, well, 
the administration could say, well, why don't we scale this back to something more manageable and then it might not hit the same headwinds and problems. Mm -hmm. That is not going to happen. Uh, mm. The maximalist approach is is continuing. Mm -hmm. It continued last Friday when the administration announced a wholly separate measure that cost $39 billion. Yet another. will continue <laughs> to yeah. cost more money that was associated with IDR. Mm. Uh, and, and again, I don't want to be just unilaterally you know, critical on these. It is not as though there are no challenges here. The, right. the IDR adjustment from last Friday that cost $39 billion was another maximalist response to a real problem. So I don't want to dismiss the, the, the problems that are the, the kernel at the center of these actions. Anyway, all that to say, the administration's not going to back down on this. And then I, I, I do think that this is likely to end up in the court again. I do think it's likely to hinge on major doctrines logic because this really is a remaking. But I don't want to think or, or communicate that that's going to be easy. We still have a standing question. You can't argue the merits before you find somebody that, that has standing. It is going to be difficult to get standing for this. And mm -hmm. also on the merits, the the president has made changes to these kind of programs before and is in charge of them. The question here isn't, does the president have the ability to make changes to income-driven repayment? That is not the question. The answer to that question is yes. The question is, does the president have the right to make such large changes that he remakes the student loan program through these IDR regulations? That's the question that I think will end up before the court. Hmm. So if you're advising members of Congress on how to kind of craft a legislative, a more moderate legislative approach to reform, is there is there a specific issue or problem that you would single out that, that they should be tackling and focusing on among some of the ones you mentioned, like college costs and program quality, benefit distribution, taxpayer burdens, borrowing incentives, which you also alluded to? Yeah. Is, is there one that you would encourage them to focus on? Well, there are a lot of there's a lot of pots on that stove <laughs> yeah. uh, to fix on. Yeah. Look, I'll, I'll tell you one of the main things that I see as a problem that needs fixing and has a particular challenge is that mm. schools need to be brought into the incentive structure here so that mm -hmm. they don't encourage borrowing that is unaffordable for their graduates. If you are graduating from Duke Medical School, probably not a big problem. You're probably you're, <laughs> you're probably going to borrow a boatload of money, right. but you're probably going to be able to pay it off. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine, I guess. I mean, we, we can work on that, but that's not sort of the central problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is when you have programs that you run that are not going to raise people's incomes. And, and and again, it's fine if you want to go to graduate school or, or, or college not to make money. That's fine. But I think you shouldn't expect taxpayers to pay the tab on that. And I think schools should have some responsibility in that. One way to do that would be something like if students default on loans that come from Duke Medical School, for instance, then Duke Medical School should have to pay some of that freight. That will also make Duke Medical School, and you know you can substitute whatever college or university is in there, to make sure that their graduates are not going to default on their loans. Schools have to have skin yeah. in the game in that sense. Yeah. So I think that that's a key thing to bring in here. This is a very difficult thing to do because I believe it's in 28 states the largest state employer is 
the university system. So that makes it pretty hard to get elected representatives Mm. to just, you know, say, this is a huge employer that I have responsibility for, and we're going to stick it to them for these higher ed loan problems and and finance problems. But until there's some skin in the game, I don't expect that a lot of these sort of root causes are going to get fixed. And one additional thing about the IDR program that I really think is important to mention Mm. is, okay, so we're going to be forgiving a bunch of loans through IDR one way or the other. That could vastly increase with this. Again, we're already forgiving some loans under IDR, or at least they're on schedule to be forgiven. This will rapidly increase this. And the more we forgive is going to go sort of in a backward subsidy to forgive students who graduated from where? Programs that don't, on average, raise students' incomes. So the very programs that produce students unlikely to make a good wage afterwards Mm -hmm. are the students who can't pay back their loans and are the students who we pay their loan balances off for. So there's a backward subsidy here for poor performing universities and university programs. That seems like something we shouldn't do. Yeah. And 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 no one's really I mean the students certainly aren't benefiting from that. You would argue. No, I mean they are they are certainly uh, I mean without some sort of measure and quite honestly without some skin in the game um, on the part of universities a, a lot of that burden does go to students. That's a very real policy problem. It's one of the policy problems you can't address by forgiving student loans, no matter how generous you are. Um, and uh, so getting a broader-based sort of legislative package that tries to address some of these things um, is probably the only way that you're going to solve some of those root problems. And if you only have a president whose main line of action is on forgiving loans, those problems are very likely to persist. Well, Nat, that, that's really fascinating. Um, yeah, thank you for walking us through this. I think, again, the numbers are so big sometimes that it's hard to conceive of, or, or what is what are the actual problems here? So thank you for kind of walking us through that. That was really helpful. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you bet. If you'd like to read Nat's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com. Consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can find more episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.